it does seem like the kind of thing that the New Yorker would write. Yeah, doesn't like, it? <laughs> it's wrong because they're making true life events seem more extreme than they really are to tell a story. And it's like, also, we've never seen a movie before. <laughs> Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is volume two of our podcast, looking at 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. Volume two is 2010 to 2019. Episode 36, we are covering Whiplash, but just to date this episode, we're all just losing our minds at that Batman trailer, which <laughs> it comes at a good time because the episode dropping today on this recording uh, of The Mat Signal is uh, Heart of Ice. So that's good timing, but that's completely irrelevant for five weeks from now. Ben. You are my co-host. How are you? I'm good. How's that Batman trailer look? (laughs) Batman trailer looks great. I am optimistic for the future of DC, but I feel like I've been saying that for about two years now. Yeah. I don't know how many weeks ahead we are, but like four, five, six weeks is enough time for them to disappoint us by the time this airs, you know? (laughs) I mean, they disappointed me on the same night because it was like, oh, we're doing a four-hour version of Justice League. Mm. (laughs) A movie which I do not remember. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you really don't. But a movie that definitely happened and that I definitely remember almost every second of is Whiplash, chosen by both of us. I think we've said this about three different movies, but this had to be one of the first things to make the list for Volume 2 when we were on a Google Doc trying to compose this one. Depending on what day you catch me on, I might call this my favourite film ever. It's certainly my like favourite, serious, big, Oscar-worthy, critically acclaimed big boy movie. You know, like A lot of my favourites are things that are deeply flawed, but I still like them. This is the thing that I'm like, objectively, this might be the best movie ever kind of thing. Yeah, this is a, a very solid top five for me for the decade, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially on rewatch. I think we've watched already the three movies that are ahead of it on my list. Mm-hmm. We'll see whether or not any of the like five star movies I also had from the back half of the decade overtake Whiplash, but as of now, it's a solid number four on my list of the movies we've covered. It's actually been a few years for me since I've seen it, but just I feel I haven't needed to rewatch it because it just it is so vividly in my memory and like the second I saw it, I was just like, yeah, this is just this is fucking legit. This is a did great you, movie. Did you see this in cinema or was this when you no, caught it? Did I? I know it came out really late. Yeah, it was like October in the US, but it didn't come out till January in the UK. Yeah, it was a, it was a January February because I saw I it saw in, Birdman. Like... I don't know if I saw Whiplash in cinema or if I waited for this to come out on DVD. But I remember being really into this Oscar season. I know, like you know, you don't love Birdman and like is it's a Big Short the same year or? Ooh, that's a question. I think it is, but I I feel the Big Short Birdman. Oh, was it was it the Big Short and um, Spotlight the year after? It uh, might Spotlight's the year. Spotlight's the year after. After. Yeah, I think it was I think it was the big short versus spotlight, but I just remember feeling for a couple of years I was like the Oscars have got some good stuff. Historically, they've often had some good stuff, but I feel there was a real stage in my life where I was actually like I think I might want to see most of the things nominated for best picture and I know you actually do see them all, but for me that was a bit of a a, a rarity. Expansion to 10 is something mm. that has really helped the Oscars. I think yeah. every single year you do get some like Green book. real yeah, you get some <laughs> real clunkers every single year pretty much like because they appeal to people who are in their 70s and 80s who are like just ingrained into yeah. the academy and white people all... fixing racism is a layup for an oscar norm every year 
exactly. And then every single year, you do get some more interesting things. I legitimately really enjoyed most of the things that have come out in the last three Oscar seasons. Obviously, all of them have got like a Bohemian Rhapsody or a Joker or... (laughs) (laughs) Hell, I mean, like Three Billboards is probably the worst of the 2017 Oscars. And like, even that isn't as terrible as a Bohemian Rhapsody or anything like that. It's just got some like lightning bolt icky stuff. Yeah, exactly. But overall competent, right? (laughs) Whereas Bohemian Rhapsody is like Catwoman. Yes. So, written and directed by Damien Chazelle, his other two fairings for this decade were La La Land and First Man. He wrote this while trying to write La La Land and struggling with it, and instead made this thing about some of his own experience in, like, a high school jazz band, and then throwing in some elements from, like, you know, famous, very demanding band leaders, that kind of thing. And it's wild to me that, like, this kind of thing can happen, where, like, he's pouring everything into La La Land, his huge passion project. And then just on a on a just sort of go off and try something else for a bit. He makes his best film. I didn't see First Man, but I know you like it, right? Like you don't yeah, love it, but you I like think, it. I think First Man is very good. I think La La Land is very good, apart from the stuff that feels like, especially when you know that he was trying to write La La Land at the same time as Whiplash. Hmm. That some of the negative feelings he has towards modern jazz mm-hmm. become jazz is dying. <laughs> Exactly. Come whiplash. But it still is in La La Land, and it feels so out of place in the movie. Like, I think my most overwhelming opinion of it is, like, there's a scene in in La La Land where Ryan Gosling is hired by John Legend to play in, like, a big, modernised jazz-performing band. And they're travelling around doing these big hits in massive concert venues. And I still, to this day, do not know whether or not the movie wants me to think that the song they're playing is bad or not. Which I think is a fairly fundamental failing. Like, the entire movie is, like, I play classical jazz, and then there's this great big like pop jazz number Mm. and I'm sat there thinking of all the interesting things that jazz has been doing for this decade especially when you look at the the intersection of hip hop and jazz that's been going on and to to put a movie out in 2016 that's just like no jazz must be classical and it just feels so confused let me point you towards one Kamasi Washington Um, (laughs) yeah and you made that point that like you have that, that that jazz is dying character but shifting him to being not the protagonist helps a lot even if i don't think andrew disagrees with fletcher's philosophy really but they're also they are not the romantic lead of Mm. your big glassy-eyed nostalgic musical movie they are both emblematic of toxic masculinity and 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 i think you're supposed to on some level pity these people like i think that's the most interesting part of this is it is coming down definitively on the side of Andrew and Fletcher of like, you know, being brilliant is everything, no matter the cost. And you see this with like sports movies and anything like this, where you've got like someone who is like, I will do anything to make you good. And like at all costs, like fuck your romantic life, fuck your social life and all of that. And it's like, I don't think most people would agree that, I mean, they're, they're certainly is a large portion of people that do think that way that like you know they admire people who are like the best in their field no matter the costs and don't care about like the human element and that this movie kind of it is coming down on that side and like the sort of the sad unspoken parts of it of like what is andrew's life outside of these scenes we see like we see it towards the end when he's like sleepwalking through his normal life after he gets kicked out and everything and he's got no friends he's got no girlfriend he's in an apartment that presumably his father has paid for. And, like, after we go to credits, like, does he go on to become a big, successful jazz musician? Maybe. But maybe he just fucking washes out after this and goes nowhere. That's the thing is, the two movies that this movie makes me think about are The Wrestler and mm. Social Network. Yeah, Social Network, I I think 
Supergirl. Uh, <laughs> I will keep calling her that. Uh, Melissa Benoist. It's not obviously on par with the scene from Social Network, but like those two sitting at a table fundamentally disagreeing with each other gives off the very similar energy. Yeah, but like him, they go him, in such different directions, though. Yeah, him doing that speech about like all the different things that he is going to give up and like how she's a distraction to his life, and then mm. she recites it back in this like sarcastic, just kind of go, "Are you really fucking saying to this me?" And then he's like. Yeah, no, you've got it. You've got it perfectly. Yeah, you get it. I thought this was going to be tough. Jeez. It's interesting that, like, Social Network takes the stance that, like, their version of Mark Zuckerberg did everything he did as a kind of revenge slash trying to impress the ex-girlfriend type thing, and he's fully motivated by her, whereas Andrew genuinely is, like, forget her, jazz is everything, and he only calls her again. Well, I guess he he thinks about calling her there, and then he does call her again. So he makes a token effort, but, like, she is not the driving force in what he's doing. No, he's, like, trying to come around to him and, like, prove to her that he isn't a fuck up is is almost what it is it's, it is petty but it's petty in a different way yeah yeah and he, making his fuckboy apology we are jumping so 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 far ahead so i mean that's fine i mean that's <laughs> I, I was gonna say linking to my rest one the reason why this movie does make me think of the wrestler is i actually saw it in the same screen oh nice the same cinema that i saw the wrestler in not the same time obviously but i have the same emotional response to walking out of the theatre to both of those movies in that it's kind of this bravo final act of just showcasing what it means to put all of yourself into an art form. Yeah, and I think that is a fundamentally incredibly interesting thing to capture in a film, in a TV show, but it's important to sort of draw that distinction that, like, personally, I don't feel these people are to be idolised or to be replicated in any way. It's kind of like a fascinating study of, in my opinion, broken people who are, like, borderline killing themselves for their chosen art form. And, like, you know, in The Wrestler, he potentially does does literally kill himself for his art form. It's a tricky one because I know I know for sure there are people who like 100% subscribe to this philosophy like give absolutely everything you have for this like this is the biggest thing in the world and like the ones like that that really bother me are like when you see these things with like high school football or, or, or whatever it's like most of these people this is the peak for them this is not the most important thing in their life because you see these stories fictional and real where you get these people who peaked in high school and then it just kind of loses for the rest of their life and just looking back on the glory days this doesn't go that way because they don't show us what happens to andrew but that fundamental idea of like you know this is the most important thing in the world it is a fascinating thing to watch and i think we fundamentally enjoy watching people kind of be brilliant and i think we do sadistically enjoy watching people kind of unravel (laughs) in films and this is giving you both of those but as i said released october 10th 2014 in the u.s january 16th uk we have talked about 2014 quite a lot but what we have not talked about are the most critically acclaimed films of the year so benjamin why don't you do your thing yeah so number one most acclaimed movie of the year i'm sure matt agrees with this is boyhood (laughs) Uh, you've got another movie we discussed grand budapest hotel babatuk a well-known gay icon inherent vice leviathan timbuktu it follows starting or not not starting but like you can see the like the horror horrors back baby prestige prestige (laughs) horror in quotation marks as it's become referred to as birdman whiplash force majeure selma gone girl two weeks one night the fantastic dardenne brothers movie uh, Mm. girlhood from selinsky armor clouds of sils maria like just Lots of like 2014. I think we the fact that we're coming yeah. for movies is a really good year. Like even ahead of that, you've got like Lego Movie and Interstellar and mm-hmm. Nightcrawler, and it's just John Wick. Yeah, like, just... I don't like saying things like movies got good again, but it 
did kind of feel like from like 2013 for the next couple of years, maybe three years after that, it was like movies are really fucking good at the moment. <laughs> I, mean, I think 2014, 2019 feel like quite slam dunk years to go like, is that the best year of the mm. decade? I think 2017 is another one of those where you just kind of go like, God, there's just so many good movies. Is it people swinging back against prestige TV? Because obviously I remember the zeitgeist of True Detective and, and all these other big shows where people are going like, oh, TV's better than movies these days. I think I wouldn't be surprised if it is sort of like a talent vacuum where mm. TV starts to steal a lot of these people in the early 2000s and you have stuff like True Detective, but with Netflix and everyone trying to make these big prestige dramas and there's so many of them nowadays and they're all <laughs> splitting the same talent pool of directors that you kind of allow these little movies to come up. Like Whiplash is a budget of what, $3.3 million? Yeah. And this kind of thing is what starts to really stick out are these little almost micro budget movies. And obviously yeah. like the thing we get to with Whiplash is that obviously this is a, a Bloomhouse picture mm. and probably one of the biggest success stories of the back half of the decade. But you've also got A24 in that house, which is just like, we're going to fund interesting movies from interesting directors, not give them a hell of a lot of money. But if this movie hits, it's a huge, massive success, which is going to fund everything yeah. else we're doing. And that's the entire Blumhouse model, which is you see it with Get Out like get out mm. is made for almost no money the money that it makes is able to fund almost every other Blumhouse movie for like two years yeah. because of just how little money they make those movies for yeah i was gonna say like that's the thing all these ha have in common that's kind of a rise of a small movie being afforded the prestige and the slot of something much bigger because mm. obviously we're also seeing hollywood trend towards superhero movies franchises all of that so that's taking up a lot of like the noise and it, it feels like that plus the vacuum of people going to tv it there is this opportunity for people who are making something i don't want to call these indie movies because i mean 3.3 million dollars while that's tiny for a hollywood movie that's still that would be quite a big indie movie but you know these, these smaller more intimate pictures with like less proven people kind of rising up and taking these big spots and you see like in the years afterwards that all these people who are making these micro budget movies they end up getting bigger and bigger budgets as they go along yeah. and i mean like damien chazelle is functionally now almost a household name yeah he was hot shit coming off this and like yeah um, and the fact that he has like the bona fides do something like 10 cloverfield lane in the middle mm -hmm. of all of this which is like a surprisingly good screenplay yeah. for what that movie is yeah, even if sure. it is obviously buoyed by just a terrific performance from Goodman. And you've got like Jordan Peele like being circled for like Akira and seemingly everything going. These people are getting these huge, huge movies off the back of these smaller ones that are Which just are still of... still like they're not that huge a budget. Like you look at La La Land and it's still mm. only a thirty million dollar budget. They very rarely do they get into that like fifty, sixty comfortable, we're gonna give this like a yeah. like a, a summer romantic comedy kind of budget. Yeah. And then in terms of opening weekend, how did this one do? The weekend it opened January sixth. 16th, January 18th in the UK, it opens at number 7 to the equivalent of 869,000 US dollars hmm. behind other huge movies such as Taken 3 <laughs> in its second weekend uh, rest in peace Taken <laughs> we'll never get another Taken movie after that interview that, yes. that Liam Neeson did no we will not, uh, <laughs> more American on that Sniper. in a few episodes <laughs> American Sniper which is like just this huge success 
Like absolutely massive success. Theory of Everything, Into the Woods, Paddington, The Hobbit, Battle of the Five Armies. Five very British movies there, or four very British movies there, all either set in England or with roots that very strongly tie them to England. Paddington, very impressively, in its eighth week. Just a word of mouth monster. Whiplash only in the theatres for three weeks in the UK. That's crazy. I mean, I know it's a smaller movie. Yeah, once you debut at number seven, yeah, I guess. assume you have like a 50% drop in between weekends. It just kind of yeah. makes it. And also, you could say that maybe this is a point where they're only accounting for the top 15 at the box office so it could have been in cinemas longer but it's only in the top 15 for that three weeks or whatever all right let's talk about the goddamn movie then just to preface just to say it once uh this was obviously a short film before it was a feature film starring johnny simmons no relation to jk simmons miles teller was the first choice but he wasn't available so they snapped him up when they made it into a full film it won awards at sundance i think and then secures funding for a full movie and they turn it around really quickly 19 day shoot you know they had it out by november of the following year which is which is crazy it's kind of nuts and i know it's a thing that the the academy awards do was if you are based on something then you're an adapted screenplay like sequels sequels are adapted and i do think it would have had a tough time competing in the original screenplay section where it would be up against like birdman boyhood grand budapest hotel nightcrawler and foxcatcher yeah but adapted from your own short film feels a bit (laughs) harsh yeah but the fact that it loses to imitation game feels like a real like i know and obviously the legend of this movie is so much jk simmons Mm. is just an absolute revelation and wins a well-deserved academy award yeah but God, this is a better screenplay than Yeah, like this is, this is more than just one powerhouse performance, I think. Like I don't think the directing is like phenomenal, but like it, it it's a really well made film and it's a really great script. I mean I mean obviously Damien Chazelle goes on to win the Academy Award for Best Director for La La Land, I think a well deserved award. Maybe we can argue that Barry Jenkins probably could have won that as well, but I think Damien Chazelle is an incredibly strong visual and composition director in terms of just how he does stuff like yeah. this, particularly when he's shooting the the actual drum scenes there's a sense of viscerality and the camera turning back and forth between the two at the end is is kind of crazy yeah and like this looks really good for a three million dollar (laughs) movie yes it does i mean obviously you're getting away with a lot of like you're in music rooms you're in dorms dingy places like that um so that keeps costs a bit lower but like when you get to like the big band scene it's like this looks real good for how little money you have (laughs) yeah i mean obviously there is that cheat that you can do where you don't have to do many shots facing the audience to see all them out there yeah, you just need yeah. you need an empty stage functionally yeah. to, to, to do those things anyway so our movie begins it is set at the fictional music school of Schaefer Conservatory which basically Juilliard closest thing to it and yeah Andrew Neiman played by Mars Teller is a student he is practicing his drumming unaware that legendary teacher Terence Fletcher is watching him and he sort of puts him through his paces a little bit he thinks he's sort of getting a shot at getting looked at by the best teacher and then he just sort of walks off seemingly unimpressed and I really like this slow zoom down the corridor as he's drumming his ass off and then kind of revealing that to be a POV shot you know the camera's coming down the corridor and then he suddenly looks up and at the doorway it is J.K. Simmons as Fletcher and like yeah just there is a real power to this they don't say Fletcher's name for like almost an hour that he is just this sort of lurking presence and everyone knows who he is and reacts to him like he's important including obviously Andrew but just right off the bat just showing him drumming in the wide shot 
Teller obviously had the drumming experience, practiced really hard for the movie and everything. Um, but yeah, just a great first scene. It's nice to see, because obviously J.K. Simmons is someone who has always had a lot of anger in a lot of his performances. <laughs> like, that's why we love him in Spider-Man. It's why he kind of pops off the screen in Oz when, yeah. he's, when he's on that. But he's also someone who's just extraordinarily kind. Yes, for sure. And like, I think what makes this character kind of fun is that when he's not directly grilling them like that he has a kind of funny energy about him where like you know like he storms out and then it's like oh man and then he comes back and gets his hat and he's like whoopsie daisy and it's just like it feels like it should be undercutting him but it really isn't and Chazelle talked about how his direction was like compared to the short film like take it further don't be human be a fucking monster but like all the reports are he was an absolute sweetheart between takes and like you can see this being a method actor not to name names but you know certain people who are very difficult on set and this would have been a very unpleasant 19 days yeah i've heard nothing but great things about jk simmons he just seems like one of the warmest nicest guys in hollywood in Mm. some ways someone who can flip between drama and comedy at the drop of a hat what would you say your favorite jk simmons performance is apart from this god there's just so many options (laughs) i know i mean like i always think of him in party down a show that i adore i think he's so funny in that obviously jake yeah i think he's great in juno good and thank you for smoking i love him in burn after reading burn after reading yeah i think that just ties the entire movie together is that i don't he's just someone who i'm always happy when he shows up i'm actually kicking myself that i haven't seen counterpart yet which i've heard nothing but fantastic things Hmm. which sounds like it uses him well where it has him playing the kind of the gruff in the no person and the the out of their depth person did this feel like a very large role for him to get i mean i guess the thing is the movie is kind of small but like this feels like it catapults him into like elite status he's always been around everyone knows him by sight and most people by name but like it feels like he suddenly becomes a huge performer off this i think he's someone who's always like someone that people are happy to see and it's just this is someone using that persona that he's crafted over so many years like you look at his list of film credits and it's he's doing six or seven films a year normally in like these little tiny roles but obviously this is the one that kind of goes like right this is how you can use jk simmons in really impressive ways and i do think he's done performances since that have used him well but then you think that he's james gordon in justice league and he got like all that fucking bulk that was was fucking gross i know that like people have said he actually is always a big workout guy and like you see him in this movie he's like just in black t-shirts quite a lot and he's he's pretty built for his age i will say but yeah those pictures of him as gordon were fucking gross <laughs> yeah, I I really want to see Palm Springs. I've heard he's fantastic mm. in Palm Springs. Oh, God, uh, so why won't Palm Springs come out in the UK, Dev? <laughs> maybe if Disney Plus do this rumoured adult section, they'll finally bring over some of the Hulu movies and yeah. put them on Disney Plus. That but would be nice. Just a necessity to kind of like dip into J.K. Simmons. And <laughs> yeah. A fantastic actor finally getting his due here. Yeah. And I hope this isn't the only time that he gets to be in this kind of conversation because there are so many ways that you can use him. And this is just one of those even if it obviously does play off that warm, charismatic side to him when it needs to. We get a rarity here. We get a little bit of a look at Andrew's life outside of music in this little montage where, you know, he's flirting with Nicole, the kiosk girl. He's seeing movies with his dad. We see this scene. He is second chair in a, in a lower class. Ryan Connolly, the like lead drummer in that class, he's like watching him while he's kissing a girl. And you can read this two ways of like, on some level, he's a bit jealous that this guy can drum and have a girlfriend kind of thing. <laughs> 
But then also, like, this subtext that the reason Andrew is better than him is because he doesn't have a girlfriend or whatever. Um, yeah, it, it feels like, and this is going to be the dorkiest reference I could possibly make, it feels like a Dragon Ball type situation, <laughs> which is that, like, any time Andrew goes away and tr- does a training montage, he comes back ten times better than he was beforehand. <laughs> yeah, because he will after this, like, yeah. He will go away, he will spy on Fletcher's class, he will practice more, he will listen to Buddy Rich, etc., etc and then he's suddenly good in the next one and Fletcher... like, people are commenting on like how much better he's got and they're like wow how much did you practice <laughs> yeah and what have you been practicing man like <laughs> yeah Fletcher will then sort of interrupt this practice session and like kicking the door in almost and strutting in looking at the music calling it cute grilling everyone in the room like asking to hear them bit by bit and telling a girl she's only first chair because she's cute. Fletcher is an arsehole. Let's make no bones about this. Oh yeah, this, this is a movie about toxic masculinity and the yeah. demands of the artist to perform above and beyond. Like yeah. he doesn't even he doesn't even accept that she could be good because she's because she's nervous and playing badly. It's yeah, just yeah. oh you're only there because you're cute and the pressure has got to you. It's such and a- he doesn't accept any of that as an ex- as an excuse. And like this is not a Doctor House, a Harvey Specter like an asshole but a lovable one this is just a dickhead purely you are not supposed to like him in any way i don't think and he can hear your ability based off the three notes that Mm -hmm. he's asked you to play the number of times he like cuts people off after seconds and it's just like nope wrong obviously i would expect 99 possibly 0.9 percent of the viewing audience cannot match that ability at all but it is kind of comical the degree to which he's like just instantly just like nope wrong See, um, see, some of them I can tell where things went wrong. Like, yeah. You can tell with the first chair that she like stumbles over those first few notes. You're like, oh, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. But there are points in this movie where I'm just like, I <laughs> genuinely, and I'm not saying that I'm like, I'm not a trained yeah. musician. My ear is for things that I enjoy the sound of. Like when I listen to yeah. music, it's very much about that rather yeah. than technical proficiency. I can't pick out individual parts of music at all. I know I if I vibe to it or not, that kind of thing. But like, I have no technical ability to pick out who's flat which instrument is the wrong one like you know all of that sort of stuff i will say counterpoint jazz being so sort of free form yes <laughs> does make it occasionally sound like is this wrong is this when it's meant to be good you get that especially in like the very end with mm. the drumming that he does and it's like it does sound off but it doesn't <laughs> sound so appreciably off that like yeah everyone in the audience would be able to tell that the drumming fell off it's just the rest of the band reacting to him but yeah this power of him just strutting in putting them all through their paces seeing not even a second of andrew's drumming he's like right i'll hear the drummer he's like okay and uh let me hear you as well and then just barely a second he's like right drums with me and connelly thinks it's him and he's like no no no, you what i really like about this is because obviously he's already seen yes andrew play and so my headcanon is because the movie never explicitly said this is he watches the increase in technical proficiency that he has in between when he watches him in that training room and he watches him in that classroom and he realizes that this is someone who's willing to put the work in he remembers every single person that he sees and all he's doing is he's looking at this person going like oh his proficiency has increased 200 percent in the few days since i saw him perform last this is someone who could potentially be great hitting him with the specific instructions of the bits he wanted him to do and focus on and that's what he goes away and works on he works on the double time and all that sort of stuff and then i I like this that like early on before andrew has chosen that lane he takes the high of being picked by fletcher 
and he channels that into asking Nicole out. She fake brutally rejects him, but then they go on this little pizza date, and they are awkwardly cute together, but, like, there is a real problem with the lack of women in the movie. <laughs> She's on screen for less than ten minutes. There are maybe four memorable. other women. She is, she is. It's not quite the, like, movie-defining performance that Rooney Mara gives in Social Network, but, like, yeah, it's a shame there isn't more for her here. She does play the romantic interest well. Like, I like the entire subject. Like, he is woefully unprepared to be able to talk to someone. But him talking about the stuff that he loves and the stuff that he's passionate about is obviously enough to woo her. But it also doesn't give off the red flags. This is someone who is willing to push everything out of his life in favour of the stuff that he's passionate for. It's just, it just comes off as a guy who, like, he knows jazz, he likes jazz, and can talk about it passionately. It is wild that the number of people that don't realise that it is incredibly attractive to be earnest and enthusiastic about things but they don't realize that the moments when they're just lost in talking about a thing they like are probably when they are actually most appealing to the opposite sex but like they yeah. try and censor those behaviors in some ways and it's like oh you've got it twisted like that's when you want to see who this person is when they're fully engaged and that light is in their eyes you know because you don't want to be coming out there and saying like my favorite thing is this and then you just come up with like the most crass awkward <laughs> i think that's why people sense themselves they don't want to put themselves out there so much that what they like is wrong which is that fundamental impasse and obviously like he does come back where he listens to her ideas about what her college experience is like Mm. where she doesn't know what she wants to major in and I mean but obviously he relates it back to his ideas oh I don't have a focus in life and he sat there going like I do I know exactly what I want to do this is my 10 year plan that's where you're starting to see those red flags coming out is that like he is sort of grilling her and being like well, why did you pick this school? Like, like he can't understand that she doesn't know and she doesn't know why, you know, she hasn't decided yet. She hasn't declared a major. She's kind of just improvising her way through it. And he's like, well, I picked this because it's the best school in the country and everything. And like, it doesn't quite get fully awkward because they bring it back to like, you know, being homesick and, and, and that sort of stuff. But like, it's like, this is the early sign here. It's not quite Zuckerberg-y where it's like, you know, BU versus Harvard or whatever but yeah th- this this little conversation is potentially a warning these two are not as compatible as they might have seemed um, yeah I, I, like, I would not be surprised to hear that Chazelle was massively influenced by social networking yeah. writing these scenes. Like, these scenes, more than anything, feel like someone who very much idolises what Sorkin's doing. And obviously, yeah. there isn't the rat-a-tat dialogue of Sorkin going on here, no. or the kind of incredible focus of Fincher. This is clearly someone who's coming into their second feature film. is a little bit looser and is a little bit focused on different things. But it does enough to feel obviously like a spiritual sister to the social network scenes, but doing enough to set up where this movie is going in regards to a more aggressive form of toxic masculinity than sort of what social network starts to butt its head against. Whereas that social network is more about kind of narcissism and those kind of things, whereas this is not. That's kind of two scenes that happen they sort of bookend this first, the ones that people think of with the movie, uh, this first practice session where you see the full brutality of Fletcher's teaching style. I mean, I say teaching. <laughs> He's not a teacher, is he? He's <laughs> just somebody who demands they play and be perfect. He tells him to be there for 6am. He wakes up late. You're like, holy shit, he's going to be late. He's going to scream at him. He gets there. No one's there. It doesn't start till 9. And the sort of lack of windows in that area making it... I mean, we know he sits there for three hours or two and a half hours, but not being able to feel 
feel the passage of time makes it all feel so like bleak this entire section here i do think that the movie makes me think that like fletcher's the kind of sociopath who would have been there at six seen he wasn't there and just immediately leave like the original plan was (laughs) like set him up to sit there for three hours on his own yeah but make sure that he arrived but the movie doesn't even like no you just it's just power play just (laughs) you're gonna sit here on your own for three hours yeah, Fletcher walks in at precisely 9am by the clock in his room. The band will walk in at like two minutes to nine or whatever. I think when you've seen this before, it's more prominent, but like, they're quite chatty, they're talking shit, like they're laughy and stuff. And then the second he walks in, it's just utter silence. Like just launching into it, the many, many homophobic comments, um, starting yeah. with just jokes like, it's not your boyfriend's dick, do not come early, and then getting into full-on F-slurs, R-slurs. There are many words that probably should not have been in this film, but... Yeah, I mean, obviously, this whole scene starts off with a whole lot of fatphobic jokes as well, Yes, where he kicks someone out of the rehearsal because he can't tell that he's actually playing okay, yep. and thinks that he's the one who's playing incorrectly. He knows one of them is out of tune, he gives them the opportunity to come forward... No one does it, so he just isolates the bits of the music until he finds them, and then just asking him, was it you? And then he's just, you know, bursting into tears, throwing him out, and then the the kicker of, like, by the way, it wasn't him, it was you. But he doesn't, oh, and that's worse. And it's just like, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, why the fuck are you looking at the floor, there's not a Twinkie down there, and just, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, it's not the job of a movie to take a moral stance mm. on everything, like, and obviously the no. movie does paint Fletcher to be out-and-out villain yes but you still decided to use these particular words yes and it's this kind of this tightrope to kind of be like i know what you're trying to do but the overwhelming use of them still comes across as like vaguely problematic it's the same thing with a tarantino and django unchained i understand what you're trying to do but you as the white man wrote this dialogue yes (laughs) you more or less thread the needle it more or less works okay but it still is something that we should see less of we shouldn't be glorifying this kind of culture and this kind of way. Yeah. That isn't to say that we can't make movies about bad people or that we can't make movies with bad people as the protagonist. It's cheap. I don't want to call it punching down, but like you can achieve these results without having him say these kinds of things. And it's slightly disappointing as well because J.K. Simmons famously, another one of his great performances, he does a voiceover for a video game, Portal 2, and he famously refused to read some of the dialogue as written because he was uncomfortable with how it was coming across so they changed it for him and knowing that he is willing to take i mean you know maybe it's like a video game that he is arguably too good for versus his big break movie or whatever and i don't want to put it all on him because you know damien chazelle wrote it but something there i'm like as an actor who clearly has principles i would hope he would maybe have I, some I guess it's, issues I guess with it but i guess it's because like cave johnson in portal 2 isn't painted as the villain in the same way that fletcher is there is something sure. demonic about this and i do think it is a level of this is more okay coming from the mouth of someone who will not be redeemed by the end of the movie but i do, yeah this is the thing though like i don't like this idea it's not the same but the way that often villains commit sexual assault or threaten to commit sexual assault against women as this shortcut to like he's a bad guy look he did this yeah you know? the, the worst thing you can do murder has become so desensitized in mm-hmm. so many people's eyes because it happens so often whereas rape and sexual assault is still that last great yeah it just it feels like such a shortcut it feels so cheap you can make this dude a fucking monster if you take those lines out this dude is still a monster i don't 
think they added, but we are hyper fixating on like a few lines of dialogue. But like, yeah, I know we're I know we're hyper fixating, but yeah. it is <laughs> recurrent throughout the entire movie. It is, but it also comes into play with the Me Too ness of some <laughs> of the later stuff in the movie, which I think is interesting. But obviously, True. we'll get to that when we get to it. So they take a break after this. The spit valves are disgusting. He has a little talk with Andrew. And he's like, you know, he's saying, you know, Charlie Parker became Bird because Joe Jones threw a symbol at his head. You see what I'm saying? And he agrees. And like, they are on the same wavelength, we will find out throughout the movie. But early on, we don't know that much about Andrew. We can tell he likes drumming. We don't know he's a sociopath yet. Asking about his family and like lulling him into this false sense of security of like, you know... Just try your best. But he's actually kind of just doing homework on him because he will will use that, you know, when he tells him about his mother leaving and then he will, in the height of his screaming at him, be like, mommy left daddy when she realised he wasn't whatever, whatever. I think it's interesting because obviously he is doing that homework on him and finding all that the weaponized insults that he can use when he does break down but i do think there is something there that he actually is trying to say do your best yeah it's just the fact that i want your best to be better (laughs) i want your best to be better and the fact that he goes through the same like he makes the alternates between the rushing and the dragging is what takes him to the edge and that isn't to excuse him but i think it's like i would be fine with you if you were on my tempo from the start, yes. but you're not, and therefore... Uh, yeah, and then, like, yeah, the scene, were you rushing, were you dragging, it starts as, like, little trouble there, it's okay, go again, and not quite my tempo, not quite my tempo, and it's not my fucking tempo, <laughs> and then just mercilessly having him repeat the tiniest of snippets, throwing a chair at him, slapping him, telling him to count, and then slapping him and asking him, you know, was I rushing or dragging? I don't know. Well, you've got to do it again then, haven't you? Um, I can tell that he's dr- rushing, he does it just before he says four. Got he that. He does. He did slap him for real, they did takes where he didn't. And then they did this one, and this is the one that went in. He didn't slap them over and over and over again. But I really want to know how they did the chair shot, because I know mm. there's lots of quick cuts and stuff like that, but like that sure does look like someone threw an actual fucking chair at yep. Mars Teller's head. Sure does. Mars Teller isn't such a big star that I think that that's not worth the risk. Um, <laughs> just completely ripping him apart, telling him to count, and like, Jesus Christ, can you not read music? And then he's going, ba 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 He's like, what are, you, what are you doing? Fucking play the drum. <laughs> the single tear, making him tell the whole band he's upset. Just, you know, seeing this is what this dude is capable of. I don't know if this is the worst example of it. I think making the three of them drum for, like, however many hours it, like might be the hours, worst. <laughs> but this is certainly just, like, a tour de force of, like, J.K. Simmons acting, but also Fletcher as a fucking monster. And just telling you what this movie is. And it's like, right, you could probably stop here and he's probably getting an Oscar nomination. (laughs) Is this where the short movie finishes? It's 18 minutes that he told him to go further with it tells me that, like, he isn't quite this bad. But I don't know. I haven't seen the short film. Uh, I feel like the short film has to... Like, this scene feels like what you would take out and put out as a short film. I don't know what the conclusion to it would be if this is all the short (laughs) film is, but... It's certainly a microcosm of what the movie is about, isn't it? You get the whole of Fletcher, you get the crazy drumming, you get the the harshness, the the mental torture of all of them. And, and, you know, you you then see him, like, go away and, like, take his mattress to his practice room, the blisters, the plasters, all of this shit. Rough fucking stuff. (laughs) So there's a jazz competition, the lead drummer, 
Tanner is benched because Andrew loses his sheet music, but Andrew knows the piece by heart, so he steps in and he is immediately made core. We see here, Andrew likes to spy on Fletcher, we see it quite a lot, but you see him in a corridor talking to a friend, talking to a friend's daughter, he's warm, he's nice, he's like, oh, come play in my band when you're older, all of this, and it's like, oh god, don't do that. Um... (laughs) But just this idea, and Jason Reitman actually gets like a, a thank you in the credits because he talked Damien Chazelle into cutting a scene of Fletcher by himself in his house or whatever. He told him to do that because one, every scene has Andrew in it. The whole film is from Andrew's point of view. But also I think it helps because I don't want to see this guy humanised. Seeing it on the peripheral like this, like spying on him in a corridor, is one thing. But I do it not seems, want... It seems more two-faced doing it like this. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That he immediately like... walks in and goes, listen up cocksuckers after that, you know? like I think this is more effective than it would have been to see Fletcher potentially drinking alone and being a sad little man with like pictures of a wife that left him or whatever. Like I don't think that... I would have achieved anything yeah um, i think i think it's the the thing of like you want to believe that his personality in the recording studio is his actual personality uh-huh. like this is him and he like, puts on a front for other people yeah whereas if you go home and he's not this angry person and said he's nice and warm or sad mm. it puts a different idea across the movie which exactly. is that like oh this is the performance that he's putting on is is this he's batman not bruce wayne it's a very quick setup and payoff but like he screams at them if i see one of these lying around these folders with all the sheet music in it, I'm going to fucking lose it. Immediately, Tanner hands uh, Andrew his one between sets, and then Andrew gets a soda, turns around. I assume someone stole it, um, because this is a competition. So I, I assume... assume I assume either someone stole it, or fucking Fletcher. Like, <laughs> that's the entire thing. Is like, if I see one of these lying around... And that is exactly the kind of thing that, like, Fletcher, yeah. like Fletcher sees it. Like, he knows who it belongs to, but he's seen it somewhere that isn't in someone's hands. For sure. I, I do like the idea of Fletcher being constantly just out of camera view as this, like, movie monster, you know? <laughs> Fair enough. Fletcher is, like, flipping the fuck out about this. And also, Tanner didn't lose it. Neiman lost it. But then, in fairness, Tanner, it was his folder and he gave it to someone else. Regardless of whether this guy is supposed to be his page turner, his drum set tuner, his slave, basically, he gave it away. So, he doesn't punish Neiman, he punishes Tanner. He is then sort of begrudgingly impressed by Andrew's performance. The brutality of, like, their first practice session after they win the competition. When when everyone's like, don't fucking touch the kit, do not touch my music, all of that. Yeah, they're all very much like, oh, Neyman's an idiot, Neyman's an idiot, and then Fletcher walking in, just going like, uh, only chords on drums today, Tanner, yeah. what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, yeah, and also, like, the Judas factor of it, almost. You fucked him over, and then you took his seat, like, you're a snake, kind of thing. What I like about it, though, is that the movie never settles into Fletcher only blaming Tanner. In the immediacy, it's almost like he's like, I disapprove of Tanner, Neiman, what good job, but then, like, given what's coming in a second, one could read it as like i won't forget that you lost that music neiman (laughs) you still did that yeah exactly or technically a better drummer or someone who's more willing to put the effort in yeah you still fucked up in that specific way even if i'm punishing the other person who isn't as good we see this he has made for core first chair whatever whatever he goes to this family dinner with what i guess it's his father his uncle his aunt and his cousins And this is where the fucking sociopathy comes out, because he is fucking high as a kite off this. I have been made first chair. It's it's amazing. They are, of course, more impressed by the cousin's 
have achieved something in football. You know, athletics trumps music for a certain type of family. Yeah, you know? and that's that's the thing that like when you come into the scene, all of their achievements are impressive. Yes, but we know going to the most prestigious music school in the country and making core in this team is an impressive feat. That that puts him as one of the most impressive students musicians in the country yeah he says it's the top band in the country and i'm core by the maths i am one of the best drummers in the world and like um, you understand or you sympathize with the fact that like his family just cannot thread that they don't understand what that means because it's a frustrating thing we've seen it in in stuff before i think some people have experienced something like this where you are so proud of yourself and the people you are telling just do not understand what a big deal it is because it's a very specific not insular but you know it is a very specific group of people you know it doesn't matter to the general public football is a much more american football in america is a much more like everyone gets it like oh he's the star quarterback in his town or whatever andrew is very like it's division three and then it gets into the point of like you think you're better than us and he's like yes <laughs> like straight up and he's like, and they say stuff like how do you know who's the best in a music competition isn't it subjective and he just says no which so, i guess makes sense because those like i know that we're all of this thing where like maybe you don't like jazz music maybe that yeah. is not something that you enjoy but the thing is when you're rating these performances they are people who can hear and understand what's going on understand technical proficiency and they're judging it on that merit it's very important they're not playing anything that they're they're not playing original compositions they are playing these like tried and tested you know like i don't want to call them the classics but they are playing they're jazz, stuff. They're jazz standards yeah they're playing things everyone has heard so to a degree you can can tell who is the best because it is performance of the same stuff that they've heard before it would be subjective what is the best song but i guess to a degree you can almost measure how good someone is at playing a very famous piece of music you're judging their talents as musicians you're not judging their talents as songwriters yeah exactly and i do think it's interesting here that his father turns on him a bit where like he is being he's being a dickhead here quite frankly like he he's right he has a point his achievement is objectively higher than theirs but he's laying it on so thick with them and just to say something like yes i think i'm better than you it's turned from i have the high ground because i know that what i've done is impressive Mm. to i'm angry that you will not acknowledge me yeah. And I think that's the entire yes. point of the movie is like he wants them to acknowledge him. He and, wants to yeah. be acknowledged by people. And on some level it's unfortunate timing because he tells them and they do seem like they're impressed but then just the cousin walks in at just that second he gets the attention instead maybe if the cousin doesn't walk in at that moment or if he's already in the room they give him more praise and this conversation doesn't happen but yeah it's just that thing of like his moment is taken away from him by just some poor timing and then they devolve into this discussion about is it better to die penniless but brilliant in your 30s than grow old and be mediocre or whatever and then his dad turning on him and basically going like have you heard from the lincoln center yeah are you are you being paid to do this yeah because because he says if you think division three is so tough come play with us and he says four words you'll never hear from the nfl and then his father who has been supportive of him and is supportive of him throughout the rest of the movie is just like oh have you heard from the lincoln center just sort of like all right you're being a cocky little prick here like are you the equivalent of the nfl no you're not so shut up also interesting in this section while he's on the bus over there he's watching drumming obviously nicole texts him it's got that thing of like ignore or reply he looks at it for a good long time 
and we don't actually see what he says before he breaks up with her in a minute for like I have to choose music over you it's like is he even that invested in this right now and maybe he is like that's the thing they don't show you because he does smile while he's reading it and maybe he's like oh everything's going really well for me or maybe we are getting those hints already of like he's not that interested compared to his drumming he's almost asexual in some ways in this movie <laughs> yeah I asked a girl out because it's what you're supposed to do. Exactly. Like, he isn't doing this because he actually has interest in her. This is just a girl who smiled at him at the movie theatre. And he's doing it because that's what Connolly did. Like, Connolly had a girl, therefore I must have a girl. I don't think the movie wants to engage with that kind of thing. But, like, it definitely is this unspoken air to an awful lot of it where it's like, I'm not interested in emotional closeness or Mm. physical closeness. I'm interested in having someone who will stand by me and smile as I accomplish things. And then after he's just made this big song and dance of how I've made it, I'm a core member, immediately Fletcher calls him temporary core and he brings in Ryan, his former competition, immediately hands core to him. I don't even think he does drum better than him. I think that's the entire point is he was going to do this no matter how they both played. And he was just like, yep, great. And he tries to argue his point, storms into his office, gets screamed out of there, and then he breaks up with Nicole. And we get this. I mean, I guess we've kind of talked about this, but like sharing some DNA with Social Network, her point of like, oh, so you know for a fact this is what will happen. And he's like, yep. (laughs) It's just like, okay. You, quite frankly, never deserved to have a date with anyone. (laughs) And then, you know, the, the, the punching the kit, the soaking the bloody fist in ice screaming and swearing while drumming like well fletcher goes and sends him away to go to a superpower which is practice for six hours to become exponentially (laughs) better by the next time that he shows up yeah i don't condone any of it but it is inarguable that his treatment makes him a better drummer and it's like that's that's the awkward part of this is that morally we're all against this but in terms of the results you can't really argue that he wouldn't have become as good as he does. In some ways, I'm sad that the movie doesn't get around the fact that, like, to make Naaman a better drummer, mm-hmm. he fundamentally breaks two other people. <laughs> he does. He destroys like, a lot of people to get here. It's not even the idea that he wants to make Naaman a better drummer. He is willing to force a promising other drummer to change his major and I can't remember what they say happens to Connolly whether or not he just like does he drop out is that what they say at the end I think he yeah he was just like he just couldn't cut it or whatever I don't know I never cared about Connolly he was always just incentive for you or whatever but so we get this scene where like at first it's like oh Fletcher's a human because he reveals a former student of his died and he plays his music to the class and he's like I want you to know he was a beautiful musician and like this sincere story about how everyone else told him he should drop out but I saw saw what was good in him and he eventually got to the Lincoln Center and became first chair and all of this and you're like wow there's a human in here and then and then he makes Neiman Connolly and Tanner take turns drumming for five hours it's nine till two a.m so yeah two a.m and like the it ends with right now we'll call everyone in and we can do the actual full practice where i doubt he had a fun time in that either but yeah just dismissing the rest of the band and just just turn after turn after turn they're getting like 10 seconds on the kit each and just being cursed out like he is hitting tanner with the f slurs i feel what he says to Mars teller might be anti-semitic but i don't know for sure i mean what he's saying is definitely racist towards Connolly because there's yes, a lot of Irish stuff. He says a lot of Irish America. stuff towards him, and obviously that's always seen as a sort of less offensive than 
more overt racism or whatever. Even but, like, though there is historical precedence that mm-hmm. like, the Irish and the Italians are seen as a secondary class of person Indeed. in New York particularly. But it feels like something you can get away with a bit more. But, you know, like calling Tanner Mr. Gay Pride and all of this. And it's just, it's fucking brutal. And like, is this as fast as you can drum and stuff like that? And then Neiman's last bit on the kit where he's just going faster, 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 throwing the drums, all of this stuff, shouting, playing a cowbell right next to his ear while he's trying to drum and then being like, right, fine, good. Now everyone come in. It's just like, this is fucked. And like, clean clean the blood off the drum kit. Yeah, you t- yeah, alternates clean the blood off my drums. And like, I assume they had to go slink off and pick up the drum he might have broken and like potentially go to another room and get a different drum and all of this stuff. And so brutal. But he has changed Neiman because our next scene, at another competition, he is late because his bus breaks down. He is determined to get there anyway. He, he rocks up. He's, he's left his sticks at the car rental place. And on the way there, he gets in a serious car crash, still turns up, can't play but tries, embarrasses himself, embarrasses Fletcher, gets dismissed. And we see the change that has happened here, where, like, Neiman is talking about Connolly, not in quite as harsh terms, but in the same sort of disregard that Fletcher does, where he's just, like, talking about him like he's a second-class citizen kind of thing, and, like, telling him fuck you as he walks past him. And he's starting to shout back at Fletcher and stuff, and it's like, this is this is bold. And he's like, you know, I've earned it. And he calls him, you are a self-righteous prick or whatever. And I think that was an improvised line by Simmons, but it's risky as hell, and you're like, he's not going to take this well. But in fairness, it does keep him the part after he's told he's going to be benched. So it's like, I'm going to shout back at you because I can't let you get away with just shouting at me. However, this is the right attitude in my opinion. (laughs) So I do want to ask, so obviously, Naaman comes back with presumably like broken arm or just something horribly, horribly wrong with it because he can barely hold the drumstick. Possibly some whiplash. Yes, I mean, that would that would bring the title <laughs> of the movie into focus. Do you think, obviously, Fletcher kicks him out of the band, but do you think Fletcher kicks him out of the band to protect him in some ways? Or do well, you think it is? I was going to ask a question here, where is there a tiny hint of concern from Fletcher when he sees him walk in, covered in blood, clearly a fucking wreck? Is it concern for this person who he is clearly working on, who he thinks he sees something special in, and he's like, oh shit, are you okay, dude? Or is it just sort of like, are you going to fuck up my performance kind of thing? It's hard to tell because obviously like after he drops the drumstick twice and just cannot <laughs> play anymore and he stops the performance and apologizes he's like you're done yeah. and i don't know if it is him saying you're done if you're willing to put your life on the line for this then maybe mm. we have pushed you too far or whether or not it is i think it's you embarrass me in front of people who i don't know if he respects anyone but you know in theory people i respect or people who respect me or whatever and you've embarrassed me like get the fuck out because obviously then after that like <laughs> tackles him and breaks his ribs <laughs> exactly like he completely takes it over the board but it's just like i i like that sense of mm. ambiguity to what exactly fletcher's motivations are to stopping Naaman. Yeah. because as we now find out in the next scene the reason why fletcher was playing the the tape from this this former student and because they died was because he hung himself i do like that he says he was in a car crash which we see name and get into you know like it's like the fake thing he gave happened here and he is pushing him down this path where he could end up doing the real thing that happened here but yeah this this student hung himself he developed depression and anxiety while playing for fletcher that just eventually he gave into but being asked to anonymously testify against him his father pushing him to do it and he's like why would you do this to me kind of thing because you know he tackled him to the ground he was like fuck you fuck you piece of shit fuck you like but he still didn't want to rat on him like this 
knowing what he's done to him, to people in front of him, hearing about what actually happened with Sean Casey, like all this stuff is is a heavy moment. And obviously Andrew is like facing life after this. Like he's throwing away his posters. And as I said earlier, we see him in his like little sleepwalky life, contemplating yeah. calling Nicole. Just... Yeah, like he's been expelled. He's working in a restaurant. He's he's locked his drums up in a small room. Hasn't thrown them out because I presume they cost a lot of money. They do. <laughs> we are in a similar situation in this house. And, you know, he just happens to wander past a jazz club where Fletcher is playing and they have this they have a drink together I think there is something quite fascinating about watching him in a world where he is he is not the authority here he's the talent certainly he's been booked but like he can't throw things at anyone in this room this is a world of mutual respect yeah I think it is this thing of like seeing him in a different light and sort of going along with the scenes earlier where he's sort of spying on him but yeah they have this drink and they talk about his termination and obviously he plays dumb about it and we'll find out he does know exactly what's happened but they they talk about pushing musicians to greatness believing it's necessity good job is the most harmful phrase in the english language like people wonder why jazz is is dying you know that big line at least it's like it's one line and it's sort of a throwaway kind of thing as opposed to like la la land has in some ways been reduced to that as like a you know white people explaining jazz and like lamenting the death of jazz it's so frustrating because obviously we touched on this at the start mm. with the likes of like what hip hop is doing with jazz and you've got artists like Thundercat and mm. Marcy Washington and even in the UK you've got Go Go Penguin mm-hmm. and you've got the Comet is Coming and Bad Bad Not Good in America Bad as Bad well. Not Good and yeah. just there's just so much interesting jazz out there nowadays mm-hmm. that to have this puritanical take on it where the only reason jazz is good is because of technical proficiency and playing the old jazz standards and but that's the whole worship. point of jazz it wasn't coherent so, like it was it was supposed to be like all over the place stylistically like that's what made it a thing and I think Bad Bad Not Good encapsulate this entirely like their story is two of them went to Juilliard got told that their music had no artistic merit because they they did like hip-hop instrumentals in a jazz style dropped out got a record contract and like you know they're not an enormous artist but they've had several albums now and like yeah i genuinely think one of the most exciting things about music in the last couple of years has been the increase of influence of jazz Mm. over instrumentals or backings and stuff like that and just the amount of absolutely fantastic jazz artists that are out there nowadays and are able to thrive and it's a shame that the the big jazz movies are (laughs) taking the opposite stance yeah like there isn't anything interesting about modern jazz anymore modern jazz has to be technically proficient i'm just like this is so frustrating and this comes off of the fact that like two years ago now i spent an awful lot of time listening to the top 1000 albums of all time there were about maybe like 50 60 jazz albums on that list and so many of them are fantastic jazz is a surprisingly consistent genre especially when you are listening to those classics from the 50s and 60s that i found a newfound appreciation for all of it but the thing is listening to the stuff that's made nowadays it's still really fucking good i would stick on kind of blue or love supreme or just any of those kind of classic albums but then i'd also want to go like no the jazz song that kamazi washington released two years ago is absolutely fucking phenomenal you can quibble with that but jazz is as if as healthy if not 
I wouldn't say more so because obviously like we're a long way away from these jazz clubs and and the peak of it in the 1950s and 60s where it was pretty much predominantly sure. jazz is the thing that you make albums of like it's not until you hit the 1960s and you get the Beatles and the Who and the Rolling Stones pressing mm. basically pop singles onto albums that you get the birth of the Monday album jazz was where, where music was for the 50s but there's still interesting stuff going on there and I don't know whether or not Damien Chazelle has actually gone on record and said like I like so and so artist but it is frustrating nah, he feels like a gatekeeper like old guard kind of guy even though he himself is like a reasonably young kind of contemporary person like he, he feels like he is trying to be the last bastion of like traditional jazz and everything but the fact that he's done the Eddie as well this is obviously something that he's very passionate about is this kind of world and this kind of classicism to it which is yeah. just it's frustrating but it doesn't infect this movie in like a particularly vicious way like it does La La Land but the other thing that's really interesting about the scene apart from that like single line of dialogue <laughs> that I've got a five minute rant about is the me tooiness of all of it in that fact that two people have come forward and obviously Fletcher has been fired but appreciably there's no negative impact on his career beyond the fact that he's lost this job he's still getting special guest gigs at yeah jazz. I'm putting a pro band together it's like if anything that seems like a step up white like, people oh, failing any, upwards yeah, anyone can conduct is what he's saying but yeah. he's still getting to be the is he the opening performance of the, the jazz festival or is he yes, I think yeah, so. it, yeah. it just like he's coasting along in his name and maybe the news that he's been fired because of abusing people that hasn't got there or maybe this pro band is made up of all former students who understand what his bullshit is but well, he is notably nicer to them but maybe that's just to really sell the trick to neiman or the fact that they're actual paid people who well, are there true i also think quite a key line in this scene is like neiman asks him do you ever think there's a line and you're like have you ever gone too far and you think you might discourage the next Charlie Parker. And he replies, no, because the next Charlie Parker would never be discouraged. And that, like, I think that really locks it into place for Neiman, that, like, you know, despite everything, I do want to be Charlie Parker. Like, I do want to be Buddy Rich. I want to be the greatest modern musician, whatever. And he's right. Like, if I'm legit, nothing he could do to me would stop me trying to do that. So now we get into the stage of the movie where, obviously, it turns out that Fletcher has played a massive trick on him. Like, Fletcher Fletcher invites Naaman to come play because the drummer isn't stacking up. It's like, oh, you're a good drummer. Come play at this professional show. We're just doing the jazz standards that we did. So Andrew, like, he thinks about it for the weekend, gets the drums out of his little cupboard and then is like all over it his dad warns him against it because of the abuse that he was put through and all of that calls nicole and tries to invite her she's got a boyfriend i do like a subtle boyfriend drop yeah when you can tell a girl doesn't want to talk to a boy and she's just like oh i'll just you know my boyfriend's there might not even be a boyfriend is the thing here like but you know his little fuck boy apology where he doesn't even he says sorry and he says obviously that's not enough but then he just launches into his little offer he doesn't wait for her to respond to sorry He's just sort of like, right, so yeah, um, this festival, do you want to... And she's sort of, she's not interested. She's like, what's it called? I'm barely listening to you. Maybe she does have a boyfriend, maybe she doesn't. And he like bails out of the phone call kind of thing as, as just this sort of last ditch effort on his part to maybe have a social life. And it's just like, nope, you fucked it, dude. The way you are has destroyed this for you. But yeah, he turns up. They're not playing any of this stuff. They are playing music he doesn't know. He doesn't have sheet music. Um, well, they, they, they are playing the classics, but they're opening with Upswinging, which is mm-hmm. a new song that he hasn't been given. And like, the entire thing is, I imagine, scare him off the stage and then perform this latest stuff without a drummer, or maybe there's a second drummer hidden in the back. But Well, I believe 
something I read here was that like there was a reveal there never was a drummer. Like he said that their drummer couldn't cut it. But I think the actual idea is there was never supposed to be a drummer. Oh wow. And he's just done this entirely to fuck him. Because yeah, like he tries, he improvises something. But it's completely against the tempo of the song. And everyone's just like, what the fuck are you doing, man? I love that Fletcher just approaches him just before and is like, you think I'm fucking stupid? I know it was you. And then just walking away. It's like, that's all that like he needs to do. He doesn't need to like say, I'm going to destroy you or whatever. Devastating. And like, you know, his father is there and we haven't seen his father attend anything he's done. I mean, he's mostly just been doing... Well, no, he went to competitions and stuff. But like, yeah, but raising those stakes. Like, in, in enclosed spaces with three judges with the only people they were performing to, they were crowded rooms and fletcher makes this like big point of how this audience can make or break you and that's the idea like obviously andrew's drumming career is already potentially over but it feels like he's basically dragging him back out to give him some hope to just really put the nail in that coffin and be like i'm going to embarrass you in front of the people that will remember that you're bad and then you will never succeed in drumming just unnecessary (laughs) but he does it andrew is fully prepared to retire from drumming yeah he, and he's accepted Fletcher, it, seemingly. Fletcher brings him back just to make sure, like, even if in five years' time, if you decided to come back, yeah. you will. I will destroy your reputation. Yeah. And also, I want to be the one who has done it. I don't want you to quit. I want to take this from you, as you took teaching from me. And again, he potentially doesn't even give a shit about teaching. And he says anyone can fucking conduct. And he storms off the stage, his father comforts him, and then uh, he returns to the stage, drums his fucking ass off in the greatest final scene in a movie this decade, this century. I, I did post this on Letterboxd and I was just like, is this the best ending to a movie of the decade? Portrait of a Lady on Fire comes close. That's a fucking phenomenal ending. Again, all based around music and the appreciation of music. Apparently that's my kryptonite is. You do something that <laughs> involves a massive score swell. I'm, yeah. I'm all in. There um, will be blood in the decade before. But yeah, this is just insane. I really like this idea that it's like, you know, Fletcher has made this big fucking thing about tempo and like my time. And it's like, you're on Andrew's time now. He has started drumming and he has convinced the upright bass guy to go along with it. And like, I'll cue you in. And it's like, he has now dictated the timing of this song to the rest of the band. And Fletcher basically reluctantly allows it. But in a lot of ways, Andrew has like taken control of the band. Yeah, and, and, and it's and it's watching the look on Fletcher's face mm-hmm. as he's just as, seething. As yeah. yeah, he goes from this like I hate this person to this wide-eyed appreciation of mm-hmm. what exactly that he's doing, and just the way that he walks across the stage and ends up he's just conducting Naaman at the end. Like yep. he doesn't give a shit about anyone else. He has stood right up in front of that drum kit when he's like adjusting like, the symbol for him and like giving him genuine actual feedback and like you know helpful conducting as opposed to what he normally does like you see him when they're playing in the rest of this scene he's just kind of strolling around the stage a bit like he's not really conducting and he made his big speech about how anyone can conduct and it also gives that secondary thing of like he looks like a sort of predator sort of prowling around the stage looking for someone to sort of give shit to and at first he does walk right up to him and like he hits the symbol so it almost hits him in the face or maybe it does hit him in the face but that he turns it into this thing he he demands his respect and for it to close on this shot of like we just see the extreme close-up of the eyes and you know his face is changing and whether he's just counting them into the next song or maybe he's smiling at him we see andrew smiles back at him but this idea that this is just for andrew like we're not going to get to see that that maybe he smiled at him and gave him his approval but that's just for andrew like it's so fucking powerful he cues them in to caravan 
he plays the shit out of it. He plays a five-minute drum solo. He does this ridiculously well-timed, like, the, the drum roll that slows right down and then speeds yeah. back up again. And, yeah, it's fucking just, insane. Just, just his tempo, or if you want to, like, swing it full circle. Exactly. It doesn't say that. But swinging it back to, like, the point I was going to make just hmm. in this all-encompassing thing. How do we feel about the fact that this movie is obviously comparing Andrew to your buddy Riches and... <laughs> your uh, your Charlie Parkers. It right? is... And obviously, like it's not just a race thing because Buddy mm. Rich was a white person. He was. And that dude could fucking drum. <laughs> it's obviously very self-indulgent. The rest of that band, they're just kind of looking at him like, what the fuck, dude? But like, even as an audience member, and like, this, the studio gave Chazelle the note, we get it, he's good. <laughs> cut, <laughs> cut, cut this scene down a bit. And like, imagine being in that audience as this dude just obnoxiously plays a five-minute solo. It's like, yeah, this is a little bit much, but like, it's so about these two characters that like, it doesn't matter. Have but... you have you never had that situation where you've watched just fantastic artistry? Like, I one of my favorite moments at a gig ever was I was seeing Bonnie Vare in their like 2011 incarnation where they had it might be Sean Carey and, and Colin Stetson on the saxophone and the drums and after one song whilst everyone went off to go like get new guitars or get drinks of water and stuff like that they just had these two performers on stage doing like a drum and sax solo and it's one of the like top three gig memories for me is just watching these people go all out and just play their hearts out as like what is little more than a little introductory bit or a little interval into the rest of it but just sheer musicianship and I mean, obviously the movie cuts away now before you get to find out what the actual reception was. There's no applause like The Wrestler or Black Swan end with to let mm. you know that like this is a absolutely tremendous performance of a thing. Yeah, like maybe yeah. Neiman gets snapped up to be like in the Lincoln Center and like goes on to become this amazing drummer. Because like, they, they, they had this thing of like, I never got my bird. And it's like, you know, this is him giving him his bird kind of thing. I've terrorized all these students and finally I found one who I genuinely think is brilliant. But they sort of aren't interested in showing you that. It's just about that that one moment of approval, you know? Like, he's always had caveats to, like, he's, like, begrudgingly accepting his drumming and, like, putting him through hell to, like, make him do stuff. And then, like, this is just straight up, like, right, we're here. We're doing this. You and me, buddy. You're fucking amazing. And it doesn't matter what happens next. It doesn't matter what happens to Andrew. It doesn't matter what happens to Fletcher. It's just about that one. He has spent almost two hours trying to get his approval and he has it. And that's movie over. It's insane. I love it good fucking movie it's a really good fucking movie shout outs to ryan Connolly, who had no drumming experience and learned three songs in the space of a month obviously he's not set up to be the actually good drummer but like even so <laughs> that's insane and obviously like mars teller like i think it's kind of overblown the degree like he played in a church band until he was like 15 he then took a lot of lessons and he is genuinely playing a lot of it and I think 40% of his drumming actually makes it onto the soundtrack, but like they're obviously using body doubles for particularly this last scene, I would imagine, and all the sort of tight close-ups of hands and stuff. But still, he sells the part like that he has even a vague amount of the ability to look like he belongs. Like It goes a long, long, long way. What do you think of Miles Teller's like, acting performance in this? Because obviously, J.K. Simmons gets all the praise. Miles Teller doesn't really break out out of this. Like He's in a lot of stuff. And he got bleed for this and stuff like that. But I don't know if he's so much a great actor as just, like, he is a fantastic sort of stand-in kind of thing. That he's able to... Maybe it's sort of like he's the best actor-drummer they could get kind of thing. 
I think this is the best performance that I've seen Miles Teller give. For sure. I think it's a, a full weaponization of everything that he's good at in terms of, because he has got that slightly prickly edge to him, mm-hmm. which makes him well suited to playing these kind of arseholes. Like he isn't a romantic lead. He is kind of like in a traditional movie that isn't about unpleasant people being unpleasant. He is, in some ways, the role that he's got in Top Gun Maverick feels like a better use for him as being like someone who seems to be butting heads. A tiny bit of a douche. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like maybe someone who gets softened by the end. If they are playing the protagonist, then you know that they're not going to be a particularly like well-to-do protagonist. It's why Mm. a more interesting take on Fantastic Four could work with him in that role. But I just think that obviously there are just so many (laughs) fundamental mistakes in that movie. Oh, I suppose that's what maybe killed his big... (laughs) I mean, he's also got the Divergent series at the same time, which is also not helping him as well. Like he's got these two franchises that he's a part of that definitely like Mm. completely kill what he's doing he's got a couple more lead roles after that but they completely bomb he obviously took time I think off he's, to do I think too he's, old to die young i think he's good in um that awkward moment where he's just sort of a secondary you know he's the slightly douchey friend but that's again using what he's good at i would say for this it's like the physicality of the drumming he's incredible at the scenes where he's just talking to another person fine i would say not overwhelmingly impressive but obviously, like, not many people could believably physically perform the drumming the way he does. Even if it's not always him actually drumming. That he could actually visibly perform this stuff. And that, like, you know, Chazelle would deliberately not call cut sometimes to make sure he, like, really fucking spent himself drumming. And some of the blood is real and that sort of stuff. Like, we're drifting into some sort of, like, business practices of films kind of thing. But, you know, I think, obviously, Simmons deserved every bit of praise he got. But, like... It's kind of funny that, like, this film is entirely hinged around Teller and, like, he's in every single scene, but this didn't make him a huge, huge name. I guess it's the same as you see with Eisenberg in Social Network, where people mm. don't come out of Social Network saying that, like, he's the best, it's the best performance of the decade or anything like that. In some ways, he's, like, the fourth or fifth most interesting performance in that movie, even mm. if he is completely nailing everything you ask him to do. The, it's less flashy to kind of praise elite performance, especially when it's one that is overshadowed by these huge behemoths supporting performances in the same way. I yeah. mean, I would be fascinated to see La La Land with Miles Teller actually in the lead role. Because yeah. obviously that was that was what Chazelle's original pitch was. I think it was supposed to be Emma Watson and Miles Teller were supposed to play the leads in La La Land. Sounds which fun. <laughs> feels like a completely different movie. And yeah. Prickly a lead and a less universally charismatic actress in that lead role. I mean, like, I would be interested to see it with Miles Teller and Emma Stone, to be honest, but... It probably makes it a less mainstream movie, but potentially a better movie. <laughs> I Again, I'd just be interested. I think Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone have chemistry at the wazoo, which is mm-hmm. why they do it and why you get them to do that role. And obviously, that's not to say that Ryan Gosling can't play prickly. We've literally discussed Drive on mm-hmm. this podcast, but can dip more into Hollywood traditional leading man in a way that Miles Teller can't. Well, there you go. Whiplash is a very fucking good movie. <laughs> it is. It is. I, I, um, like, there's a lot of things I'm very excited coming up on the list, but I don't think many, if any, of them will be better than Whiplash. We'll see. I'm going to be I, watching a lot of movies for like a second or third time. Yeah. But. I would be shocked if this... Like, for me, this is number one. I'd be shocked if something that I see for a second time or some of these I might be I'm going to be seeing for the first time if anything knocked this off but we'll see what happens what I do know is next week we are going to be watching a movie you have not seen yep. another movie about someone trying to be the best in their field with a lot of cool music in it it's Creed potentially one that sticks out on the list there are a couple but 2015 was not 
overflowing with stuff we wanted to put on this list. I mean, I think it's interesting. Uh, the only reason I think it sticks out is because it's the only franchise movie we'll this be discussing. Is, this is true. At um, least until one of the movies gets a sequel in the next couple of years. <laughs> but that will be next week, so stay tuned for that. Benjamin. Yes. Will there be movies? Yes, there will be movies. But uh, were you I... rushing or were you dragging when you gave that answer? Oh, uh, I probably rushed. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Still I didn't know And I did it